Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. I am so happy, and it's been too long. I can't believe I haven't had him on the show yet. Dr. Jason Fung is a physician, a kidney specialist, a researcher, and a New York Times bestselling author. And he's written some amazing books, including The Obesity Code, The Complete Guide to Fasting, The Diabetes Code, and what we'll mostly probably be talking about today, The Cancer Code, which all challenge uh, conventional thinking about these diseases. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Your breadth of work is amazing. Um, you've contributed so much. I guess let's start off. So for people that are out there, like, let's just talk about <clears throat> cancer for a second in third grade terms. What What is it? What happens when cancer is in the body? No matter what it is, what is the, what's going on there? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting disease <clears throat> because the um, the cancer is derived, uh, it originates from our own sort of normal cell, but it turns into something which spreads and grows and basically has a mind of its own. uh, And sometimes it kills people and it happens very commonly. So, you know, the lifetime risk of cancer is something like one in three sort of thing. So it's, 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 it's very, very, Common. It's the second most uh, common uh, killers uh, of Americans. So, as a cause of death, it's sort of number two. And what's important is that we've made a lot less progress in cancer medicine than uh, any of the other major diseases. So, if you look at infectious diseases, you know, we have better antibiotics, we have antivirals, and so on. Uh, for heart disease, Uh, If you compare heart disease and cancer, they've traditionally been number one and number two in terms of causes of death. And uh, if you are looking at the 1960s, you're about twice as likely to die of heart disease um, as cancer. And now it's practically neck and neck. So we've made far more progress. And part of the reason is that we don't understand what cancer actually is as a disease. It's completely different than any other disease we've ever faced. we, you know, if you look at um, what causes disease, we've figured out most of them. We figured out bacteria cause this disease, viruses cause this disease, heart attacks are caused by blockages in arteries um, to the heart and so on. But people haven't really figured out what, what cancer is. And the book is really a discussion of sort of how, uh, what we think about this disease and what it is. To put it in very simple terms, it's likely um, a sort of a reversion back to a more primitive sort of cell. So if you think about breast cancer, for example, the original breast cell, it has an evolutionary history. So that's contained within its genes. And when that cell sort of moves backwards towards this more primordial, more primitive self, that's when it becomes sort of autonomous and almost like a separate species um, and that's why it's so difficult to treat because it's, it's, it's really like an alien uh, invader, but it originates from our own uh, cells. And it's a very, so, so it's, it's, you know, the book is talking about sort of the mystery of um, what 
this is and how to understand it because our understanding of the disease has really undergone a huge revolution in the last sort of 10 or 15 years. And most people haven't even, aren't even uh, aware of that sort of revolution. I think, that, and, and I mean, you're the expert here, but you know, hasn't there been progress? I mean, people used to die of breast cancer, right? And, and now they're not. So it seems like some progress has been made or am I completely wrong there? It's very slow. So if you look at the progress in cancer, we are making sort of steady progress in cancer, but compared to heart disease, it's much, much worse. Uh, You know, death rates from heart disease are dropping quickly uh, and every other disease as well. Uh, And cancer has really sort of flatlined. So there was sort of, we've gone through three sort of big revolutions in terms of understanding cancer. One is uh, sort of we treated it as a disease of basically cells that grow too much. So we developed these treatments like chemotherapy and surgery and radiation to try and kill these cells, which got us to a certain point, but it didn't get us to the point where we're trying to figure out what is causing these cells to grow. So then we went into this sort of genetic paradigm where we thought about the gene mutations that cause the cells to grow too much. And then so we so for the last really 40 or 50 years, we've been sort of all in on this genetic paradigm. And so we've been looking for these gene mutations, and these are what we call targeted treatments where we target these gene mutations. And there's been a little bit of progress, but very, very little. If you look at the survival, for example, from cancer, um, you know, it's not a huge amount better than sort of 30 years ago. So it's, it's really advanced minimally. Um, so there are some advances uh, and it's because the genetic paradigm really didn't lead to any treatments because most standard cancers didn't have one or two gene mutations. Most of them had 50 or hundred gene mutations. So trying to develop 50 or hundred different new drugs to treat these mutations was simply impossible. You couldn't develop that many things. So we've moved into this sort of third paradigm, which is sort of like, uh, you know, trying to explain why these gene mutations are happening. Because the genetic paradigm sort of held that these were relatively uh, random mutations, whereas this, this uh, you know, there's nothing random about what cancer is. Cancer is a very, very uh, stereotyped response. That is, when you look at breast cancer, for example, one person's breast cancer looks very similar to another person's breast cancer, even though these developed independently of each other, because one person's breast has nothing to do with another person's breast. Um, so it's, it's really a, uh, you know, we, we started to look into the evolutionary cause and looking at it from an evolutionary standpoint leads to sort of new treatments, including things like immunotherapy. So there's great promise in these things like immunotherapy and other new treatments that are on the horizon, uh, but and I think that finally we're starting to move the needle a little bit uh, in terms of trying to get uh, where we're going. But yeah, the progress is just very, very, very slow. Um, it's, it's, it's really worse than most other areas of medicine. Mm, okay, so on that note, now most of our listeners will understand. You know, most people listening would understand things that are risk categories for cancer, right? Like cigarette smoking, or you know, you work in some like radioactive lab. <laughs> you know, there's lots. There's lots of you know uh, pollution. You know, we we all know some of the causes out there are the things maybe we need to avoid. And of course, at the Primal Blueprint, you know, we do emphasize an ancestral paradigm. We're uh, all for uh, in and out with keto and. Um, 
you know, intermittent fasting, et cetera. You know, what can we do other than a great clean diet that's ancestral based with the right macros? What yeah. else? What else can we do? Now, I know you talk about fasting a lot, and I guess I want to jump in here and be like, you know, this concept of autophagy is really amazing. And is that one of the reasons why you're such a big fan of fasting in the hope of prevention of cancer because of what that does? Or can you get into a little bit about like, yeah, because we all want to know, like, we don't want to get this. (laughs) It's it's certainly important because if you look at what causes cancer, they've done these studies where they look at... um, sort of how much of cancer can be explained by, say, smoking. And so they do, basically, they take the risk factor of smoking, you say, how powerful is it and how much of the population is exposed. So tobacco smoke is both very carcinogenic and a lot of people smoke. So therefore, it's one of the most important causes of cancer, as opposed to, say, asbestos, which is also highly carcinogenic, but a very small population at risk. So especially these days when we've taken it out of our homes, it used to be very bad, of course. But, you know, if you have, uh, so, so the, the population attribution fraction is a combination of those two things. How carcinogenic is it and how many people are exposed to it? So when you look at that, that's a sort of tally of what percent of cancer is due to, say, tobacco smoke. That comes to about 30 to 35 percent. The second biggest is diet. It's huge. Like as a risk factor, it's actually either on par or just behind smoking. Okay, well, that's really great news then to hear because that's something that can control. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you look at all the other causes of cancer, that is pollutants, radiation, family history of cancer, they're like three to five percent at the most. So tobacco smoke and diet sort of dwarf everything else in terms of causation of cancer. If you look at ancestral diets, the rate of cancer is almost zero. So there's tons and tons of literature on this. So you look at people who are following a traditional diet. So in uh, Dennis Burkett in the 50s and 60s, he went to Africa and he noticed right away that the Africans who are living like Africans didn't get colon cancer. The Africans that lived like white people, that is white diet, white lifestyle, they did get colon cancer. So therefore, it wasn't the genetics. And we had focused so much for the last 50 years on the genetics of cancer. But cancer was not really related to genetics at all. Uh, If you look at the Inui in the far north, for example, uh, universities used to send expeditions to the Arctic Circle to figure out why these Inuit, uh, or they used to call it Eskimos, uh, were so-called immune to cancer. They barely ever got cancer. So, uh, of course, that wasn't true at all. What happened, of course, is that as they became more uh, sort of westernized, they started eating a Western diet, following a Western lifestyle, uh, they got all the same cancers that other people did. So again, it wasn't their genetic makeup that protected them from cancer. It was that traditional ancestral lifestyle. So it becomes very important. So uh, it's even true if you look at migration within um, populations. So if you take a uh, Japanese woman uh, or a Japanese man from Japan and you move that person to Hawaii, their risk of cancer jumps up. Prostate cancer, for example, goes up like eight times. Uh, Whereas stomach cancer goes down like by, you know, 
80%. So What's these cancers. That? What's up with okay? that? Um, in the case of stomach cancer, it's likely that stomach cancer was caused in large part due to a bacteria called Helicobacter pylori. So in, it, this was very common in Asia. It turns out with the sort of crowding and not as good sanitation that we saw in the sort of 60s and so on, uh, that lots of people in Japan and China and East Asia had H. pylori. And this was a carcinogenic uh, bacterium. So they had very high rates of stomach cancer. But then those same Japanese people came to America. All of a sudden, you have clean water. You don't have overcrowding. You don't have you know, filth in the street sort of thing. So that H. pylori prevalence went down. And because it's carcinogenic, the rate of stomach cancer just sort of plummeted to very close to American levels. Um, so in that case, it was a bacterium, but uh, in most cases, it's the diet. You take a Chinese woman from Shanghai and you move that Chinese woman to Shanghai and her risk of breast cancer sort of doubles almost immediately. So again, it's a dietary factor. And this has been shown over and over and again over, which is, as you say, great news, because if you can understand what part of the diet is really important in the causation of cancer then you could potentially lower, so keeping in mind that Americans are in this super high risk category because of our diet. Um, obviously, stopping smoking is the most important thing, and we've made a lot of progress in there. But the second most important thing is to sort of uh, get our diets back on track so that we can reduce our risk of cancers. And the most overriding, uh, most overriding importance is obesity as well as hyperinsulinemia. So, uh, both right. So obviously factors. that low carb paradigm is what we're looking for here. Yeah. And it's not necessarily low carb. You can eat carbs and still have a low insulin. So insulin is a nutrient sensor. And this is some of the stuff that I start to get into. So there's various nutrient sensors in the body. They basically tell the body when food is coming in, when nutrients are coming in, and insulin is one of them. So when you eat carbs, but also when you eat protein, for example, insulin will go up. Uh, there's other ones called mTOR, and there's another one called AMPK. And all of them tell the body that nutrients are coming in. And what we found over the, what we've discovered in the last sort of 20 years is that not only are they nutrient sensors, but they're highly potent growth factors as well. Because your body will only wants to grow when nutrients are available. So therefore, if nutrients are not available, there's no growth signaling. When there is uh, nutrients available, the body will tell its cells, grow, grow, grow. And that is, of course, going to tip the scales towards cancer. Because the sort of seed of cancer exists in all of our cells. If you provide sort of fertilizer for this, like growth factors then those cancers are going to uh, grow. So it's, it's, a, it's a important, because, but it holds great promise because therefore, if we're in the high-risk category in North America, then if by understanding and following sort of a traditional diet, a sort of low-insulin diet, which can include carbs. Carbs are not necessarily the only thing that's bad. Uh, there are lots of carbs. It's mostly processed foods, really. Processed, the processing of the foods is really what's bad for us, which is why those sort of ancestral diets are so powerful. But the other thing is not eating like constantly. So there's two issues, right? It's, one is what you're eating, and the other is when you're eating. So if you're eating sort of not so good foods for you, but you're not eating all the time, well, that damage is going to be highly limited because you're not eating all the time. 
where we get into trouble is that not only are we eating highly processed foods, uh, you know, highly refined foods, which are the worst for us in terms of, say, insulin secretion, but we're eating all the time. And part of it was official recommendations. Oh, eat six times a day. Oh, eat eight times a day. Oh, eat, you have to eat breakfast. Oh, you should eat a bedtime snack. It's like, well, by the time you take all that advice, you're eating six to 10 times a day. Yeah, I remember I was on that train. That was the worst train ever for me. Almost, <laughs> it kind of created like a hypoglycemia. Like, yeah, that whole, you know, eat every couple hours, keep the insulin steady. You know, we all know now that that was just like, that's it not. Was, it was dumb. Because there was no studies that ever said that it was actually good for you. Nobody had ever done it in history. So we took this idea, which was brand new, which is you should eat six times a day, which was highly profitable, by the way, for a food company. So they jumped all over it. And of course, gave lots of money to researchers to research why eating six or 10 times a day is good for you. Tons of doctors were recommending it, tons of dietitians. It's like, okay, but this has never been tried ever before because people you know, didn't want that. If you're eating six to 10 times a day, you're not making like a slow cooked, you know, slow roasted, uh, you know, uh, bone broth or something. You know, it's, it's, you're not going to take three hours to make a meal if you're eating every two, three hours, right? So what happened, of course, is we're eating constantly, but then we're eating processed food all the time, processed and prepackaged foods. And that's the, oh, let's get these snacks and let's get these bars and let's get these shakes. Because if you're trying to eat every hour and a half, you simply can't cook a good meal all day long. That'd be like your full-time job, right? So it was a terrible idea. There's no science behind it. Somebody just thought it up, thought it made sense. Uh, people got behind it. And uh, before you knew it, that's what we were telling you. Everybody got suckered in. It was a horrible idea. Damn thing. Okay. One of the things I found find fascinating, look, we know sugar is bad for you, but you know, one of the things that really kills me when I hear about it is just sort of like the whole, the whole idea of the PET scan. Right. I mean, and again, this is the way I look at it, right. If they're searching, if they're like, we think there's cancer in your body somewhere, we need to find it. You know, my layman's sort of like non-science mind, the way that I think about it is like they inject you right with something that essentially is sort of glucose because the cancer cells will light up around that. That says so much to me. Like what the fuck, like why does cancer love sugar? So like, what's the deal there? What's the correlation? I mean, to me that says, Oh my God, don't eat sugar, but (laughs) you know, but can you kind of like expand on that? Like what is it about glucose that cancer loves so much? Yeah, it's sort of this reversion back to uh, our sort of you know, uh, primitive sort of programming. So if you look back at the way primitive cells uh, metabolize things, glucose is one of the major sources of energy. So it undergoes something called uh, fermentation, which is uh, glycolysis, which is, of course, based on glucose. Um, the, the cancer cells, because they're a very primitive cell, need glucose. And in order to grow, they need a lot of glucose because the way they generate this energy is less efficient than... So there's two ways that we generate energy. So there's glycolysis uh, and there's oxidative phosphorylation. And oxidative phosphorylation, which most of our cells use, uh, generates sort of 36 ATP per glucose versus sort of two to four for um, glycolysis. So because the cancers use glycolysis because it's a more primitive uh, sort of method of generating energy, it requires way more because you're only making four ATP, which is a unit of energy versus 36. So if you're making like eight times as much energy per one glucose, 
that cancer cell needs sort of like eight times as much. So um, that's what the, the PET scan sort of takes advantage of. These uh, cancers are very sort of uh, avid glucose sensors. And that's one of the things that they require a lot of glucose in order to grow, but they also require a lot of insulin in order to take in all this glucose. And that sort of is one of the, the weaknesses. So that's something that you could potentially exploit. Um, it, it won't do, it, it won't completely kill the cancers. It will help, but it won't completely kill it because cancers can actually metabolize other things such as glutamine and even fatty acids. So it's not exclusively uh, dependent on glucose, but yes, most most cancers are going to require it. And it's just the way that they're, they're built because it is a primitive cell. It's, these are not more advanced cells. So people think that, oh, they're developing into these more advanced uh, sort of cells that can grow and stuff. No, they're actually much more primitive cells. When you look at them on the microscope, they're primitive. Um, so they use a very primitive way of generating energy, which is that, um, that uh, glycolysis. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And again, if you're eating, you're cutting out your sugar, you're cutting down your refined foods, particularly refined carbohydrates, then you're going to reduce your insulin. And if, if cancer loves insulin and cancer loves glucose, well, hey, that's going to go a long way in terms of what you're going to do. Um, Which is why, and I want to highlight here, why that you know HbA1c test can be such a good baseline to see what you're doing there. I mean, I was pre-diabetic and didn't even really know it. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think there's a lot of people out there, what a state of inflammation that is. And, you know, I've heard at least my doctor says, you know, we're we're looking at like 5.2 or below as being optimal for HbA1c. And he was saying that anything really above 5.2 will continually increase your chances. Like percentages go way higher for cancers and other things. I'm assuming it's because of that, this insulin connection you're talking about. Yeah, and it's not something that is a short-term thing. So it's very um, so cancers take usually decades to develop. So it's sort of like not a huge risk, but it's a small risk over a huge period of time, which becomes a huge risk. So that's why a lot of the studies are very much uh, limited because people will say, oh, yeah, we, we uh, gave insulin for like a year and we didn't see any increased risk of cancer. So therefore, it's fine. Um, but it's like, you know, those breast cancers, they don't hit like 10-year-olds. They hit like 60-year-olds. Mm-hmm. So you need, like you had that breast for 60 years. Like it took that long for the breast cancer right. to develop right. from a normal breast cell. Um, so therefore a lot of these studies are like, oh, we cut sugar for like six months and we didn't see any impact. So therefore sugar that doesn't have any impact. And like, you know, your, your time scale is just completely way off. Like you can't say for sure that this is true. It doesn't give you any insight. So it's, it's always a little funny to me when people say that kind of thing. It's like, um, you know, you can't compare that because it, it doesn't, um, it, it may not make a difference because it's sort of a long-term thing. It's just right. like if you had like a piece of metal and you got it wet, you say, and you check it 10 minutes later and said, there's no rust here. Metal <laughs> right. doesn't rust yeah. Who's water. doing this study? It's the like, sugar companies? <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, well, of course there's no rust. It's the same sort of thing. It's like, of course not. Same thing if you were to take um, tobacco smoke and, 
you know, make somebody smoke 10 cigarettes and a month later look for breast, uh, for lung cancer. And you say, see, told you, smoking doesn't cause lung cancer. It's like, well, right. you're completely wrong because you didn't think about it in the right way. It, re- it, re- it kind of reminds me, I don't know if you heard about it, but it kind of reminds me of the Game Changers vegan propaganda movie by James Cameron, where they claimed that, you know, eating meat lowered testosterone and erections. But the study they did was just like a three-day study where they hooked a device up to some teenagers' junk and made them eat vegan burritos. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, what kind of study is this? That That is ridiculous. So, you know, sometimes everyone, we've got to look behind claims here, right? You know, because those things yeah. are just ridiculous. So, yeah. Yeah, I see that parallel. Let me ask you this. So, cause you know, primal blueprint and a general ancestral model or even keto, even a real strict paleo, um, paradigm, uh, yes, all, all in line with, you know, prevention of cancer. However, are there foods and things that we need to pay more attention to? Are you like, Ooh, you know what? My go-to man, I eat kale every day. Or, you know, what are some things that maybe we can add if we don't, or things we might be alerted to that are really great for the prevention of cancer that we wouldn't think of or a vegetable or something we need to add in to, to help us? Uh, that one is difficult because, um, so they've studied this, this, this whole field is called chemo prevention. It's there's stuff you can take to prevent cancer. And after sort of like 40 years, they've really not come up with a whole lot. So the most sort of, um, data exists really for green tea, uh, perhaps. And a lot of this data comes out of Japan because they drink a lot of green tea. Um, but whether that's the causative, you know, whether that's responsible for their low risk of cancer is hard to know because of course they, they do a lot, like they're very lean, they eat a lot of seafood and, you know, so they're, they're a lot different, uh, population than us. Uh, yet there's a little bit of evidence in terms of some of the catechins and stuff in green tea that potentially could do it. Um, with respect to foods and supplements, no, nothing else really qualifies uh, for, mm-hmm. for the term chemo prevention. Um, uh, and, and the reason is that you're really looking the wrong way. That is, we're looking for something that we're sort of lacking that will be good for us, where we're actually getting almost too much of everything. And we don't need to be looking at what else we need to be adding on. We need to be looking at what we can take away to get better. And that's pretty well everything. So that's why fasting <laughs> is so powerful because it sort of takes away everything. So uh, people say, well, is it, is it carbs? Is it protein? Is it this? Is it that? And it's like, it's probably all of it. Um, you know, but it's, it's the sort of, you're looking in the wrong direction or, you know, like if you're, if you start going in the wrong direction, you just never get there. Right. So if you want to go from New York to Florida and you start running North, it doesn't matter how hard you run, you're still never going to get to Florida. Right. So if you start looking at things you want to take to prevent cancer, you're going to going in the wrong direction because we're already taking too much stuff. You have to look at stuff you need to take away. And right. then you can say, hey, if you restrict carbs, do you lower the risk of cancer? And yes, in some cases. And hey, if you go vegetarian, are you gonna, is it going to work? And so you can do that kind of stuff, but you have to, you, have to, you know, it's, most people want to look, and most of the studies, honestly, uh, there's been tons of studies on vitamin supplements and cancer. Most of them have no benefit, and some of them increase the risk of cancer. Because again, 
What are are some that have been shown to increase the risk? Because we should know about some of those. Beta carotene, which is a precursor to vitamin A, vitamin B, folic acid. Um, those, those have those two, particularly vitamins A and B, they've done studies on all of them, vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin E, selenium, uh, multivitamins, uh, omega threes, all of those were sort of no benefit, but no risk either. Mm-hmm. But vitamins A and B and folic acid, yes, a higher risk of cancer when you take those supplements. And again, if you think Interesting. about what it, about the people that, for example, like have high, high homocysteine or MTHFR mutation and need to take like methyl B12 folate kind of stuff. Like w- what about that? Um, that hasn't been studied in large populations because most of these studies uh, are large studies of sort of thousands of people. So there it's potentially you could have a risk. So the homocysteine story was really what, what caused all those studies of folic acid really and vitamin B uh, so this was from the 2000s, from the 90s. So if you remember, homocysteine was a risk factor for heart disease. And you could lower your homocysteine levels if you took folic acid, for example. So there's tons of studies on how on to see whether if you took folic acid, you could reduce your risk of cancer and reduce your risk of heart attack. Not beneficial at all in terms of heart attacks and um, a fairly... fairly um, impressive rise in cancer causation with folic acid. Remember, um, if you're giving supplements, vitamins, that's going to encourage growth. So again, people are looking in the wrong direction. Everybody thinks growth is good. When you're an adult, growth is not good. You want everything to sort of maintain your liver, for example. You don't want your liver to keep growing and growing and growing. You want your liver to stay the same size. And in order to do that, your the, the, the number of cells that are sort of dying have to be replaced by ones that are, you know, being born. You don't want more, more otherwise it's just going to keep growing. Um, so when, when you grow more, it's great when you're a kid, but not so great when you're an adult. And this is the big sort of uh, thing you have to understand is that we have this mindset that all growth is good, but it's it's not. It's just like uh, it's it's just a balance. That is, uh, you know, if if you're going to, uh, they say you have a race car, for example, and you rev its engine a lot, you're going to go really fast, but you're going to burn it out. So it's the same thing. If you want to grow a lot, you'll grow, you'll get big, but your lifespan is going to be lower because they're going to have problems with growth. So every, all the big problems of, um, of older age is problems of too much growth. Cancer is a problem of too much growth. If you have uh, heart disease, it's because you're, you, you get atherosclerosis, which is the growth of those uh, plaques inside the arteries. I mean, all of these things are sort of too much growth. Insulin, hyperinsulinemia, too much growth, type 2 diabetes, which is hyperinsulinemia, all of these things. So, you know, the whole point is that when you're giving stuff to encourage growth, you're going to get into more problems. You actually need something to slow down growth because cancer is a disease of cells that grow too much. So vitamins are going to encourage growth. And that's why you see the increase in risk of cancer with vitamin B and folic acid and so on. Um, in oh, fact, what about, that? What about yeah. that new... Product where the, the people are really into 
uh, is it, well, they call it like Truniagen, but it's like nicotine, sorry, nicotinamide riboside chloride, right? Or do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know that much about it. I okay. mean, to me, it's just another um, supplement. Again, it, it might have some specific benefits. And I'm not saying none of these vitamins have benefits. Like there's a lot of vitamin B12 deficiency. So if you're B12 deficient, then you should take vitamin B12. Right. The point is that if you're not vitamin B12 deficient, then taking more vitamin B12 is not really all that good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it all depends on where you're at. So that, that other one, which is another one very popular, um, yeah, it might work. I mean, you'd have to wait and see the studies. But to me, you know, it's, it's about having less, not taking more. Yes. Like if you look at all the animal studies, like the only consistent thing that increases longevity is calorie restriction, taking yeah. less. You want to put your body into a state where, so, so, you know, growth is the opposite of maintenance and repair, right? Your, your body sort of is either in growth mode or it's sort of maintenance and repair mode. So when you're young, you want to be in growth mode. So you want to eat, you know, lots of those foods that encourage growth, vitamins and stuff. When you're older, then you want to be in maintenance and repair mode, and that's just the uh, that's just the the uh, the way it goes. They're they're diametrically opposed to each other. Stuff that's going to encourage growth is not going to be good for maintenance and repair and longevity. Right. So you know you either have to choose one or choose the other, and that's why you see when you look at sort of sort of like people who live to a hundred, like they're not generally big, obese people. They're not big. They usually are very small. Like if you think about where people live really long, they're like usually very short and very skinny. Like in Japan where you have a lot of people over 100, they're usually these little tiny old uh, women who are not like very few are overweight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's one of these things. So, so, you know, we have this mindset where we're always chasing growth, like take more vitamins, take more protein, take more of this, take more of that. And I think you're actually going to see that most of them don't do anything. They don't encourage longevity and they, what they will do is encourage cancer because that is the prototypical disease of too much growth. So not that we're going to do what you do, but what is your day like in terms of eating? Do intermittent fast every day? Give us a rundown. You wake up, you do this. When do you eat? What do you eat? What kind of paradigm do you follow? Yeah, and uh, this is the important thing is that uh, fasting is just a part of the natural cycle. So that's why you have a word like breakfast because it's the meal that breaks your fast, which means you have to fast in order to break it. So therefore, what you know, this, you know, people had understood for a long time is that your body really needs to cycle between feeding and fasting. Okay? When you're feeding, your body is going to store energy, so calories. You're, when, you, when you eat, you're taking more calories than you can use at that time. So your body has to store some of them. When you don't eat, like when you're fasting, your body has no, nothing coming in. So therefore, it's going to take the calories that it's stored and use them for energy. And your body stores it in two ways. It stores it as sugar, so glycogen in the liver is sugar, and stores it as body fat, which is a longer-term form of storage. So if you are storing too many calories, then you're going to have problems with obesity, which is too much body fat, 
and too much sugar, which is type 2 diabetes. Um, so if you don't want those diseases, then all you have to do is make sure that you're balancing the period that you're feeding and the period that you're fasting. So go back to the 70s and 60s. This is what people did. You ate breakfast, for example, at 8 a.m., and you ate dinner at, say, 6 p.m. So you had 10 hours of feeding and 14 hours of fasting. So great. So you're storing calories for 10 hours, burning calories for 14 hours, and you're still in balance. And it almost didn't matter what they ate because whether they're in America or they're in Ireland or they're in Poland or they're in India or they're in China, it didn't matter. People didn't have a lot of problems with obesity. So it's a part of your everyday life. Uh, the problem, of course, now is that people think that they need to eat all through the day. So if you look at studies of how people eat, they basically eat the minute they get up because, of course, somebody yells at them if they don't have breakfast. It's like, oh, my God, you have to eat a muffin, like, right now. It's like, okay. And then they eat constantly through the day, and the average uh, period of eating is now closer to 15 hours. So from 10 all the way up in the 2000s, up to about 15 hours, which means your fasting period has gone down. So now you're spending most of your day storing calories and less of your day burning calories, and that's the big problem. So you know, if you want to lose weight, you simply shift that balance and spend more of your day burning those calories. So for the most part, I try to, like, I don't eat breakfast because I'm not that hungry and I, I'm usually busy trying to get out the door. So I don't eat breakfast. And um, so it's usually like a 16-hour fast. If you have dinner, say, if you have lunch at, say, 12 and then dinner at, like, 6.30 or something, you know, 16.8 almost every day. And that's without thinking about it too much because this is the key. When you make it a habit, it doesn't become difficult anymore. So when people were in the habit of breakfast, lunch, dinner, no snacks, no bedtime snacks, 10 hours of feeding, 14 hours of fasting every day, they had 14 hours of fasting every day without thinking about it. So they weren't on a diet. That's just the way they were. Um, so I do 16 hours most of the time. And then once in a while, I do 24 hours. Again, all you have to do is then it's easy. You just drop the lunch, you work through lunch, and you go dinner to dinner. So now you've got your 23, 24 hours fasting. And I might do that two to three times a week, uh, depending. Uh, and that's about it. I mean, I try to stay away from sugar, but I'm not, I'm not totally, like, I don't totally. For a human being, you might have a bite of something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And I don't, I don't completely stay away from carbohydrates either. I mean, again, it's, I try to eat less for sure. Um, but it's not like I eat zero. So it's, you know, to me, the important thing, um, you know, it's all important if you're trying to lose weight, but to me, the fasting duration is really more of the important thing um, because it allows my body to get into that proper balance of feeding and fasting and allows me to be a little bit more lenient in terms of my diet. So over Christmas and stuff, I wasn't watching my diet particularly, and I was over. So then I would tightened it all up and lost okay. the weight, and now back to normal. But it means that I was able to 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 you know partake of you know normal stuff. Like I'm not the guy who goes to a party and you know the the host is like, oh here have some great cake, and I'm like oh, I don't eat cake. And like 
you know, that's really rude, right? <laughs> if you're a guest and <laughs> made you this nice cake, I'm going to have a slice because I think it's rude not to take it, right? Is it good for me? Absolutely not. But I'll make it up another time. So that's my sort of philosophy of it. And that's why I think the fasting is such a powerful tool for not, not only weight loss and type 2 diabetes, but also things like cancer, because physiologically, all of this sort of makes sense and gives us a way to sort of be freer. That is, if, if, if you do have a period where you haven't been uh, following the diet that is you know, that you really want, then you can do something about it because you can always drop that insulin level very quickly by doing some fasting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you're going to take six months to get rid of that weight. You can get rid of it in like a couple of uh, days. <laughs> right. And I just want to mention everyone that Jason is also the co-founder of thefastingmethod.com, which provides education tools and community needed to successfully, you know, help everyone with intermittent fasting. Um, so I wanted to mention that. Um, where else can we find you? Is that your main website? Give, uh, we'll put everything in the show notes. Uh, yeah. So thefastingmethod.com. And then you can follow me on Twitter. It's at uh, doctor, that's DR, Jason Fung. And also I've got a lot of uh, new YouTube videos on. Um, if you follow my channel, it's actually called Jason Fung, not Dr. Jason Fung. Okay. So I had great. set it up a long time ago, but there's a lot of free information, free videos on, on fasting and some of the science behind it. Excellent. I just want to mention your books again, The Obesity Code, The Complete Guide to Fasting, The Diabetes Code, and The Cancer Code. Thank you so much for your work. Um, It's amazing what you're doing, and uh, these books are incredible. Is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with? Um, I think that what I I try to do is um, sort of give people the knowledge to help themselves, because unfortunately you don't get a lot of this advice from your doctor. You should, but even the advice, I mean, that you give, like eat healthy and, you know, try and follow a traditional diet and stuff. You don't get that from your doctor. You get like, oh, you should take this drug. It's like, well, you know, a lot of these diseases that we face are actually diet related illnesses. So therefore what you should do is try and change the diet. And I, I, what I hope people do is listen and understand that this is a way that they can take control of their own health because it's really, really important because you can't simply go to your doctor or nurse or dietitian uh, expecting them to say, oh, here's your diet. Let's go over your diet because you have type 2 diabetes or you have obesity. Uh, you need to lose weight. Like what happens, unfortunately, um, in the medical profession is that you wind up just getting a bunch of pills. Um, and, um, it's not going to make you a lot healthier. And, you know, that's why I think it's really important to try to listen to these, uh, sort of advice, uh, especially on the dietary side that makes sense and see if, if you can be helped by it because you really have to take control of it for yourself. Yeah. So true. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. would love to have you back on again, talking about some of these other topics you've written on. I really appreciate your time. And for everyone else, we'll see you next week. Primal Blueprint listeners don't compromise on pantry classics. Whether you're going keto, paleo, in the middle of a whole 30 month, or adding to your Primal approved arsenal, Primal Kitchen has a full range of mayo, ketchup, dressings, and oils that add flavor and variety to any meal without ever compromising on ingredient quality. 
From avocado oil-based mayos bursting with flavors like kicky chipotle lime, creamy classic, zesty garlic aioli, or savory pesto, to unsweetened ketchups and organic mustards, there's a condiment to complement every taste bud. Be sure to stock up on Primal Kitchen avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, and new balsamic vinegar of Modena to add ease and great flavor to any dish, whether you're grilling, baking, broiling, braising, sautéing, or stir-frying. Primal Blueprint listeners can get their favorites 20% off when they use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout. 